Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. It's Tuesday. Tuesday! Dude, we're actually recording a podcast on a Tuesday. This I'm is pretty amazing. Pretty pumped about this. We've had a few life hiccups and yeah. we are back. We are oops and rallying and we got this. <laughs> yeah. Last week I posted on Instagram about a life hiccup explaining this and everyone's like, oh, a hiccup. What happened? I was like, I didn't mean to like bring in a whole bunch of connotations with the term hiccup. I didn't realize that that was going to make everyone scared, though perhaps everyone should have been a little bit scared. I think people sense that something pretty serious had happened. I don't know if hiccup was the right analogy. Yeah. Maybe a loud and smelly belch would be more <laughs> appropriate for what we actually experienced last week. It was a little rough, but we are back and rallying. And we're actually going to talk, we talked about it on Friday, but we're super vague. Yeah. We were just kind of like poking at it. And I feel like a, a Dr. House could have figured it out, yeah. but we're actually going to talk about it and just kind of, well, we've learned in this wisdom quest. Yeah, it's been such a fascinating week, such a sad week, but also an optimistic and hopeful week in a bunch of different ways. And throughout that process, we felt so supported and loved. Megan described it a little bit on her Instagram yesterday. And I think you probably got like 8 million comments. What do you think? It was about that number, right? People were so kind. I actually need to go through and respond back to all yeah. of them. Uh, take it like maybe two hours to do that because people were just so kind and nice and sharing their own experiences or sending love. And it's just a reminder, man, community matters so yeah. much. And grateful for the SWAP family, the, the SWAP podcast family that has kind of grown with us in this journey. And Wow. Just like immense yeah. gratitude. Well, you are so freaking loved, you know? And I think you, you must have felt that yesterday, especially because like getting to hear a lot of people talk about you over time and no one ever says, Megan is a fast as heck runner and that's why I love her. Or she is a great researcher and that's why I love her. They say she's an inspirational, uplifting person that makes me feel better about myself and that's why I love her. And I feel like that really came out yesterday. There were more heart emojis on one post than I have ever seen in my life. You probably like broke the Apple al algorithms for heart emojis um, for a number of different reasons. We needed an anatomic heart for the oh. Apple. Yeah, for an Apple emoji. How cool would that be? And let's just see some vasculature going on in there. <laughs> Give it some a few band-aids really just like oh, yeah. reflect the healing process. Put a breathe right on. strip on that heart, oh, man. Oh, shoot. Oh, that's what I need. Yeah. We just we need cardiac surgery to put a breathe right strip on things and it will be way better. <laughs> the large tan version. Actually, an athlete on the team saw us running before all this happened on the trail. And what she told me afterward is that her four-year-old daughter or something like that said, why does your coach have a Band-Aid on his nose? Is he hurt? And then our, the athlete had to reassure the, the four-year-old for the rest of the hike that no, coach is okay. He just really wants to breathe through his nose very badly. Breathing. I mean, that's an important lesson to give to a four-year-old, the power, the imperative power of breathing. <laughs> so important. Um, so before we get to the wisdom quest and all the details there, um, we just wanted to say thanks for your support of Science Corner that came out last Friday. It was kind of our placeholder episode before we were ready to talk about the big subjects um, that we're going to talk about today. Um, the next Science Corner will be on the art and science of easy running, uh, which is very complicated, very interesting, and a little bit more um, important, I think, than a lot of people assume. So subscribe to the podcast now if you can, so that you're alerted when it comes out, because we're just going to drop it randomly sometime over the next two weeks, uh, based on kind of how the winds take us with the, uh, the medical journey. And we've talked a lot about easy running on the podcast before, but yeah. I think putting it all in one spot and kind of synthesizing all the different studies on it will be fun. We're going to embrace our inner Kipchoge, Kipchoge cycle, uh, shuffle to talk about it, yeah. and I'm pumped. And also some a little bit faster easy 
easy running as well. I think it's one of those places that people sometimes neglect. Um, and I, I think as important as it is to keep easy runs easy, it's also important not to be dogmatic about specific uh, pace ranges. And especially if you're looking to like reach that next level. Um, and so a couple of reminders before we start. The podcast email is someworkallplay at gmail.com. You can send anything in there. Um, we love you all. It means a lot to us. We have gotten a few people being like, what's your email? Because you haven't mentioned in like 15 podcasts. Uh, so, uh, you know, email that with any any uh, feedback you have. David is responsible for responding to our podcast emails and you also <laughs> forward them to me. So I get to see the, just the gift of, of responses that we get from people and the gift of questions and curiosity. But you do such a great job responding, David. If you send an email to David and to, to swap, David will send like a long and thoughtful <laughs> response. Not putting pressure on you, David, but I'm just, I'm overwhelmingly impressed with the amount of like response and love that you give. Oh, people. it's the coolest thing ever. That being said, if I ever haven't responded to your email, chances are it's gone to spam. Have you had that? So if you haven't checked your spam filter recently and you're on Gmail, Gmail has been throwing things to spam just like randomly. And it says, this looks like a past spam message. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? This person's talking about like running coaching or something. And it makes me feel like a total shit face. Um, I actually, I had that happen to an athlete who sent me an email about crushing bitches. And yeah. I was like, how is crushing bitches spam? That is so unique and authentic. Yeah. It should never go to spam. So I agree. Also, same goes. I've had a lot of people reach out to me over direct message on Instagram. I try to respond to all of them, but Instagram's not the easiest platform <laughs> to type away responses. So if I don't respond to you, send it to the email and it will get to get to one of us one way or another. Instagram is for heart emojis and dick pics. That's <laughs> all it's for. Um, and we also want just at the outset do a promo for Whoop. So Whoop uh, generously sponsors this podcast. We both use it. We're going to get into actually some complications with uh, what we've had in the last few weeks and um, like uh, that ends up being a major Whoop promo, but join.whoop.com slash swap, S-W-A-P, gives you 30 extra dollars off. And then at checkout, do offer code swap, S-W-A-P, for 15% off. We're big fans of the heart tracking, uh, especially after our current experience. Also excited to see Whoop pioneering women's health. So Whoop is releasing some menstrual cycle tracking algorithms, some menstrual cycle coaching. They're partnering with Stacey Sims, who's a fantastic researcher in this area, and excited to see a lot more um, you know, companies and devices prioritizing the menstrual cycle. We've talked about this here on our podcast. Yeah. So Whoop is doing that and leading the field in that direction. And you know, just honored to be working with a company that's prioritizing that. Yeah. And maybe we can do some research with them in the future about uh, various types of wisdom quests involving hearts. So that is our segue into the wisdom quest journey is what we're going to call it around Megan's health in the last couple weeks. Um, so how exactly do you want to start this? Do you want to start with like how this presented? Where do you want to go? Let's just start and kind of let people know what I've been dealing with yeah. and experiencing because oh, okay. so I think it's helpful from, I think a lot of people go through health journeys and let's just start with the diagnosis. Okay. I feel like if we dribble this out, people are going to be guessing the entire time. Like, what are you diagnosed with? We have so many cardiologists, a lot of doctors on here. And I feel like let's just go for it. So this last week, I spent a couple of days in the hospital and was ultimately diagnosed with autoimmune myocarditis and pericarditis in my heart. Uh, I've had a lot of itis this year. Yeah. Itis essentially stands for inflammation, and my body has just been kind of wrecked by inflammation and this autoimmune process that's going on. I think before all of this started, before we had any idea about the autoimmune thing, you coined a term on the podcast, which was piece of shit itis, which is what you felt. I mean, it's funny because you know that piece of shit itis you were describing was probably all related to underlying health things that you were then projecting onto like either your toughness or your stress or whatever, your emotions. Um, and so that piece of shit itis was actually, you know, 
manifested itself now in these these two conditions. So what are they? What what, what does it entail? As I say, piece of shit is actually like a, a cardiac definition. We can, <laughs> we can, that's, that is what I'm dealing with. That is my diagnosis. But essentially myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle and pericarditis is inflammation of the heart lining. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they go together and sometimes um, some, some people may just have pericarditis or just myocarditis. And myocarditis is the one that's a little bit more scary than per- pericarditis because when you have inflammation of the heart muscle, it can cause the heart to go awry and many different ways um, in terms of like signaling abnormalities, rhythmias, conduction, all of these different things. And so it becomes a little bit more of a scarier diagnosis, but fortunately I'm stable now. We're working with doctors actually heading out to Stanford coming up. So grateful. My research advisor helped me get an appointment with Stanford cardiology. These appointments take months (laughs) and I was able to get in this Friday. So excited to get some answers and just a little bit more clarity. The best doctors in the world and it's going to be great. You know how they say brain fart? We've had a heart fart. Um, so maybe that's exactly what we need to call it now is a heart fart. I would argue, I think a heart fart would be pericarditis. I think a heart shirt is myocarditis <laughs> and pericarditis, which is what I've had. So just technically a little bit more challenging. Oh, you're so brilliant. Um, yeah, and, and you know, throughout, we'll probably be making some jokes. Uh, it's very serious, obviously. If anyone out there has dealt with something similar, know that like you don't have to make jokes about it or anything. We're just trying to bring as much love and optimism as we can. So let's zoom back to when it started. So... Um, I guess now we're looking at 10-ish days ago. There was a Saturday long run. We actually, I believe, even talked about it briefly on the podcast. You absolutely crushed it. It was so good. It was at Walker Ranch, where uh, is our main training grounds for all of our athletes in Boulder. Um, and on the first loop of just a normal long run, you set the all-time record, and um, which is just remarkable. You were, it, it was my second fastest time ever on that loop. And I've trained on that loop hundreds of times with the best male athletes before their big international breakthrough races. Um, um, and, and you weren't even pushing that hard. Your heart rate wasn't that high. And it, it was one of the more remarkable things I've ever witnessed. And, you know, it was that moment where you're like, fuck, you're going to take over the world. And that's all that was going through my head while I was running behind you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So it was actually two and a half weeks ago. We did a long run up in Walker Ranch, a 20 mile long run. I felt so good as you were talking about, like it was one of those runs of like effortless transcendence mm-hmm. where I actively knew I was running fast as I was going. <laughs> and listeners who have been listening to the podcast know I've been, I was shooting my shot. Yeah. I was like, this is, we're really going for this training block and preparing for Bandera 100K. And I remember saying to you immediately after we finished that long run, like, bring it on Bandera. And it was awesome. And maybe a touch scary. I think whenever you're that fit, it's like, it also comes with expectations of yourself too. And I was like, I'm so ready for Bandera. And so just to behind the curtain a little bit as a coach at that moment, even stepping outside of the husband role, what went through my head is, you know, our goal is to control the range of probabilities as much as we possibly can. So your bad day is always going to be bad, right? It's always going to be the same for anyone, no matter who you are, but you had gotten to a point that if the trajectory continued at Bandera, like the middle range, middle end of the range would be doing an ultra performance of the year. I mean, as wild as that seems like that, that was what I was thinking while I was running with you, particularly seeing your breath rate, all these other fascinating things. Um, and I can totally understand that fear because it's like, oh my gosh, you're, you're working with this, like you have a work of art under the hood, you know, like it's, you're not just like a machine now. It's something that is just firing on all cylinders, like unlike I've ever seen. And that leads us to what happened shortly after. 
So shortly after, I, w- I was trying to think of an analogy for what would be going on under the hood oh, no. in terms of cars. I'm like this like beat up Ford Pinto that's just <laughs> like struggling under the under the hood. That looked like a Maserati from the outside. Yeah, but I actually, I mean, I didn't feel anything during the run. 20 minutes after the run, all of a sudden I started getting very, very cold, which sometimes is normal for me. I often yeah. get very cold post-long run and then developed sharp, stabbing chest pain. I mean, it was wild and it hit so fast. And I think the nature of how it hit, like being cold post-long run, didn't really have any symptoms, no nausea, no shortness of breath, no shoulder pain, other things that you would associate with yeah. potential heart issues. I have fully convinced myself. I was like, oh, maybe I strained something during this run. Maybe this is like a rib cartilage. Maybe this is just a little bit of irritation, yeah. um, like a musculoskeletal sort of irritation and fully convinced myself <laughs> of that fact. But I told you at first, I was like, oh my God, David, my heart. And then I was like, actually, I don't think it's my heart. I think yeah. it's my rib cartilage. Well, it wouldn't make sense that it's your heart because you weren't you didn't have any of the breath rate issues. You didn't have any of the heart fluttering. Um, you just had done a run that like was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. How does that possibly make any sense? And, you know, so then we, we drove down back, back to the house. And after we got here, it, it seemed like it wasn't quite as bad um, shortly thereafter, which kind of ameliorated some of our fears, at least in the specific moment. And at least for me, like I was initially panicked about it. And then I was like, okay, don't panic. You know, she's dealing with these autoimmune issues. They can manifest themselves in very weird pain sometimes. So this could be normal, right? I think that's the challenge too, is I've dealt with so much pain this last year from autoimmune stuff that's been wrecking havoc on my joints and other areas of my body that I tend to ignore some of it unless it's persisted for a period of time. And, you know, I should have used my doctor brain to think about the fact that this was in my heart a little bit more. I think the other interesting psychological point was this is was such a fantastic long run. Yeah. I think if this had been a terrible long run, <laughs> I would have been like, it's time to go to the emergency room. But there was a part of me that knew that by walking into the emergency room, I was not going to be doing Bandera. Yeah. And I think that was another like precipitating factor in continuing on, which in retrospect, really not smart. But it's so hard because toughness has to be elevated in all athletes. Like otherwise, how do you discern like when it's okay to push and when it's not? And your toughness has let you achieve these remarkable things in life. And you're applying it now to this specific issue. And I mean, I think it's it's the exact thing that you have to do, but it's also the thing that can be the ultimate curse and we never want to do. And it becomes this really tough mix. And so after that, um, we actually ran the next day. That was the run with Addy that we talked about a couple weeks ago that was fantastic. I mean, it didn't seem like it hurt too much or affected your performance. No, I actually felt great on the run. And that was the point in which I convinced myself. I was like, this is not a hard issue. Yeah. I just ran 12 miles with Addy Dog. I felt, you know, it wasn't, we were running pretty easy, but I felt fine. Um, the chest pain did continue afterwards. Um, and that's when I was like, oh, well, I loosened it up during the run. It must have <laughs> been musculoskeletal. There must be some sort of costochondritis, some, some rib cartilage stuff going on in there. And um, it continued but I just totally talked myself out of it. But and, and you didn't just talk yourself out of it. You performed yourself out of it. So the following Wednesday, she set the third fastest time, uh, the long way up Mount Sanitas in Boulder during a 1-1 workout. So one minute on, one minute off. That's freakish. How was that even possible with what was what we ended up learning what was going on? I mean, for another, for a flash forward, we saw when she got her initial blood work, we asked, you know, we're like, oh, this is free blood testing. Let's ask for some other values. Her hemoglobin was 15.3 where in the past you've been significantly lower. So clearly your body had created some compensation mechanisms to get oxygen to working muscles, even though you had no oxygen. So it's pretty remarkable how your physiology was responding to make 
that Wednesday workout possible on what we already knew what was happening. You know? Well, I think there was a few things about that Wednesday workout. So we've been talking about the powers of matcha tea. Yeah. And I had matcha tea <laughs> before the Wednesday workout. And I was like, nothing is stopping me. <laughs> and we actually had had on Tuesday, I tried to do a workout and couldn't. I just felt like I, my legs were sludgy. I couldn't move. And so I showed up on Wednesday. I was like, I'm not going to judge. I'm going to drink matcha tea. Yeah. I'm going to execute. And maybe I should have judged a little bit more because I said to you during the workout, you know, this is fine. I just don't really feel like my, my legs have a lot of blood flow going to them right now, but I kept going. And uh, yeah, you, that was and interesting. you absolutely crushed it. Yeah, we talked about matcha and banging. You matcha and bang the fuck out of your own body. Um, so flash forward to that following weekend, we were doing some of the final long runs for Bandera. Um, you know, we, we were doing a loop and you were struggling on the uphills a little bit. We finished the first loop of three loops. We get back to the car. And actually, what did I say to you at the David time? David said, so I, we started running the first uphill on Sunday. And this was like right when everything kind of started to coalesce in terms of me realizing this was probably chest pain, probably heart pain. And I just was feeling sludgy on yeah. uphills from the start. And you turned to me and you're like, Megan, this is where champions are made. You're like, let's get out there and do another loop. So I was like, okay, I'm yeah. a champion today. I'm going to get out there and do another loop. And, and on the downhill of that loop, you were like, I, you, this is what you said to me, right? I feel great. This is going awesome. I'm turning this around. I'm Ubison rallying, as we said. And then on after the downhill, we hit maybe a two foot uphill and we slowed almost to walking pace. And that's when I realized too, I'm like, okay, this is something more. We don't know what this is. I didn't even think that much about heart. I, it seems ridiculous now in retrospect, but I, I, I don't know. I, I just didn't really... Uh, coalesce in my mind and we walked the rest we actually saw some of our athletes at the time uh they gave us some love though we didn't tell them exactly what was going on and uh struggled our way back to the car we did a 25 minute mile uphill on the way back to the car and i remember finishing hands on knees and being like oh we made it but still not putting two and two together yeah. after that point and um it took i mean the heart pain really started to progress after after that and got to the point monday morning where i was like okay it's time to get this <laughs> checked out i do think this is heart pain yeah so even then though we did a like a, a quick turnaround at urgent care where we started walking into urgent care and realized that this isn't an urgent care problem this is an emergency department problem um and then went to the hospital they sat you in the room, and then the medical odyssey began. Uh, much like Odysseus went 10 years uh, striving to get home, you went 10 years trying to find a diagnosis at that <laughs> hospital. But I think what was interesting was I actually got kind of emotional. You dropped me off at the hospital, and I started crying on the way walking into the emergency room because I was like, well, here goes Bandera. Like, yeah. you know, I've worked so hard for this. I'm so excited. Um, you know, I'm so fit. Here goes Bandera. And it it's funny how I walked in like that and then walked out of the hospital thinking like, you know, just having so much gratitude for life and appreciation and all those things. But that was definitely the first thing on my mind when I walked in the hospital. Yeah, it's so interesting to be laser focused on a goal and then realize, have the goal just like totally pulled out from under you and realize that there's a whole other picture beneath it that you're concerned about. So um, let's go through the medical stuff just a little bit, because I think it's really instructive for people that go through this uncertainty. And then we'll zoom out to a bunch of different uh, lessons and things. So uh, yeah, where do you want to start with that? I think just the idea of being an advocate for yourself. So yeah. we get into the hospital, they show, we show up, they do immediately a bunch of blood tests and EKG. Um, initially, actually, you know, I walked in pretty chill. I yeah. was like, I'm having minor chest pain. I think I'm fine. I just want to get an EKG, rule things out. And I think even the nurse was surprised when tests started coming back abnormal because I yeah. just was sitting there making jokes kind of chill. And there was a lot of, I think, miscommunication early on mm -hmm. and being able to like 
be, you know, I have the experience of being a medical doctor and being able to converse and kind of just help navigate and direct the process. But I feel like even for athletes who don't have that background, being actively involved and invested in the process yeah. is so helpful whenever going through anything yeah, medical. You, were, you did so great in there. So you, you got the EKG in the initial, like, I mean, the nurse was like, oh, this looks great. And then even a doctor, like a hospitalist, a non-cardiologist was like, oh yeah, you should be, you know, discharged today, maybe even soon. And that's where we were at. And then Megan saw the printout of the EKG. And uh, this to me is the wildest part of this whole journey. So obviously, in, in you, you weren't a cardiologist, but for studying for step one and things like that, you have to learn a little bit about EKGs. And as any of us that have studied for tests in the past know, you are mnemonics or like visualizations and things like that. And one of the visualizations they have for EKGs is called tombstoning. And when Megan saw her EKG, she was just like tombstones. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is way more serious than I thought it was. And that was when everything, like, I mean, I, I started to, I had to leave the room and, and cry a little bit because I was like, fuck, is she going to be okay? You know, what's going to happen here? And so, yeah, I mean, how did you feel at that moment? Well, I mean, it was funny because I haven't reviewed cardiology in a long, long yeah. time. And tombstoning is maybe the one thing I remember from <laughs> EKGs. And I saw it on there and I was like, wow, those are some ST segment elevations. Those oh are not gosh. fantastic. Yeah, and it was, I mean, but it was wild to me because, you know, at that point we were just getting such mixed sing signals yeah. from doctors. Like some doctors were like, oh, you're okay. Um, and other doctors were like, ah, the cardiologists are concerned. And when I saw those tombstones, I was like, ah, <laughs> that's why the cardiologists are concerned. And then my second reaction was, oh crap, I'm gonna have to be MPO, which yeah. means that you can't eat because oftentimes when there's tombstones, they want to be, they want to have a patient ready to go to the cath lab, which is what they do in, in case of like uh, cardiac emergencies. And that was the second thing on my mind was like, damn, I'm hungry. <laughs> That's the, you're really committed to our avoiding underfueling cause. I appreciate that you're keeping the podcast message going. Eat enough always, even if you're about to get a calf, uh, though I don't know exactly what that is. Um, so at, at that point, um, it was about admission. We we're, we're going to be admitted for the night. I tried, a uh, little aside, I tried to get it so that I could stay the night with Megan and they weren't allowing that for COVID. So I was like going to the nurse and I was like, okay, you know, I need to be here because like to remember her whole medical history. And the nurse was like, oh, does she get forgetful? I was like, oh yeah, you know, sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you just need someone there that's there to help. And there's like, oh, so she gets forgetful. And they were really pushing that narrative. And then they went to Megan and was like, do you get forgetful? And Megan's like, no, I don't. I was like, oh, heck no. I was like, David, I don't want you pushing this forgetful narrative on my medical chart. That's That would be imprinted on my medical chart forever to have you stay one night. So I was like, I'm very sorry, but I am actually not forgetful. But so then my next push was like, well, you know, I want to be there for her when she has to go to the bathroom in the night. She has to go to the bathroom a lot in the middle of the night. Okay, that's, that's a valid reason. And um, they're like, oh, well, is she like, does she fall? And I was like, yeah, she's fallen on trail lines recently and things like that. And then they didn't let me stay for that reason. Though the next morning when I came in at 7 a.m., I saw a big placard on her door that said, fall risk. So I, I did muck things up and didn't get to stay the night, but I did bring flowers uh, at 7 a.m. So perhaps that added a little bit to the process. I was so pumped to see you at 7 a.m. I, of course, didn't sleep like the entire night. I spent the entire night peeing, as you can yeah. imagine, because I was just was like, oh, my heart hurts. I'm going to get up and pee. Oh, my heart hurts. I'm going to get up and pee, which isn't that far different from a normal night minus the, the heart pain. But yeah. uh, that was kind of the story of my night without you. Yeah. So, I mean, we were really scared at that point because they were worried about something called SCAD. Um, don't need to know exactly what that is. Is just know that it's really bad and, and would be surgery or, you know, concern about like life and death. Um, and later that day, she ended up getting a CT angiogram and that ruled out that. And so at that point, we were actually starting to get hope again that this might be 
just pericarditis, this inflammation of the heart lining, which requires rest, but not like incredibly long. You know, it's not, it's not hugely uncommon in the athletic world, particularly people with autoimmune conditions. And so we were a little bit hopeful at that point. Um, that was, that would be dashed soon enough, but um, it was a moment. It just shows the ups and downs that happen in this hospital process. It's wild. There were so many ups and downs and it truly was a game of waiting too. It was like waiting for troponin levels to come back, which are a measure of cardiac enzymes, waiting for all these tests to come back, waiting for the EKG reads, or even worse, me seeing the EKG yeah. and then waiting for the analysis by the cardiologist after my preliminary tombstone read. Um, but on a good note, waiting for chicken tenders. That's uh, true. So one of our ta big takeaways, hospital food, actually kind of badass. If you go in with an open mind, it's pretty incredible. It reminds me so much of like the lunchroom as a kid. And I would, I mean, as the, as the little kid that loved food a lot, I would get so giddy 20 minutes before lunch that I couldn't focus. And that's exactly how I was in the hospital. Um, and the best, the best part about this particular hospital's food is that they had a tagline on their menu, which was treat yourself. Much like Tom Haverford in Parks and Rec, where he would get all these fancy uh, clothes, clothes and things. So we were li fully living the treat yourself lifestyle. It was fantastic. I would say this, though. Their portion sizes were not big. I yeah, was like, I need to treat myself with four of these entrees <laughs> because that's the size of my normal dinner. But that being said, I've been on an anti-inflammatory diet most of this year due to the, some of the autoimmune issues I've had. And as I was in the hospital and fully like recognizing the fact that I had pericarditis at this point, possibly my myocarditis, I was like, well, this anti-inflammatory diet didn't do shit. <laughs> so I actually, I ordered chicken fingers and French fries and I was like, eh, it's time to treat myself. <laughs> and it was great. It I tasted so, I mean, with tons of ketchup and it was like, oh, it was everything I needed right in that moment. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking that it was kind of like reverse psychology on your heart. It's like, heart, I gave you everything you need and you're not treating me well. Take this, motherfucker. Um, so that was a good thing that was in the hospital. Um, there were also other good things in the hospital. Um, there, there was a place to write your daily goals. So Megan, of course, wrote in big letters, crushing bitches, which was pretty cool. Um, there was a dog service plaque of all the various service dogs that had served this ward. So there were like 40 of them. Um, I particularly uh, will always remember Daisy on that plaque because she looked just like Addie. And that was a good dose of hope for us in that hard moment. <laughs> that really mattered. I sent you a text message and I'm like, breaking news, Addie Genetics. She's 60% Daisy. And this <laughs> dog just was like full on snarfing in the photo. And I was like, that's totally Addie. My other reflection from the hospital is we interacted with so many kind and nice nursing staff and other like hospital members and it was awesome and here yeah. in boulder of course like most of these people are athletes in some way so we had nurses who were trail runners and rock climbers and ultra runners and road marathoners and it was neat to get to talk athletics with them and just have them understand the athletic journey but I think with that in mind, I think like 20 athletes in Boulder have seen my small boob <laughs> because that's what like cardiology is all about. It's just like ripping off that hospital gown and putting on a ton of EKG leads. And, you know, a, a lot of people in Boulder are like, damn, she's got some small boobs. Oh, but a big heart, <laughs> a big heart that's like a little extra big right now with the inflammation. Um, yeah. On, on that note, the, uh, the cardiologist who was great. Um, did come in the next day. And, and because Megan is a doctor, was describing all these various things. They were they were really nerding out on it. Um, but at one point, we were talking about the tombstoning. And he actually literally draws a tombstone on it with daisies in an RIP. And I was like, okay, I, I get it. But for my benefit, perhaps don't do that, even though Megan uh, was really into it. Uh, another good story was that we were sitting in Megan's bed. Um, I don't know if they're beds for two people, but we were trying to make it work. And I was like, you know, petting her like she was a cat for some reason. <laughs> And she just says, I love you. 
And then all of a sudden her machine starts beeping that she's going into V-fib and calling in a nurse. And I said, oh no, one, well, actually on the plus side, this is a sign that maybe she actually really, really does love me that I'm sending her into V-fib. But two, I was like, oh no, the love is killing her. Uh, sure enough, I just had petted the lead off her and it, like, I think probably wasn't reading it at the time, but it made me feel really good for a second and also really bad. Petting an EKG lead is a 14 out of 10 good dog pet. <laughs> I was really, I was really feeling that. Um, and then the, the thing that would really give us answers was the cardiac MRI. So before you went into the cardiac MRI, I read all about it. And I read that it is one of the most traumatic experiences that a lot of people ever have, because it's a few hours in this machine that's exceedingly claustrophobic. Like you're, it's a small tube that basically is just a big enough for a human. Um, and some of the articles, including one article I read in Triathlete Magazine, said that that experience stays with them forever. And so I asked you, I, I didn't want to like make you scared, but I was like, are you ready for this cardiac MRI? And I was like, what are you going to do? And you're going to like... I'm just going to close my eyes and go to a beach. And I was like, okay, we can end the conversation there. I fully support that. That is all you need to know about cardiac MRIs. Well, I should have known going into the cardiac MRI because you asked me this. And then like four nurses asked me this. And I was like, guys, I'm an MRI vet. Like I've had so many MRIs of different parts of my body. I will be totally fine. And the cardiac MRI wildly different experience. Yeah. That MRI machine is like four inches from your face. And then you actually have to be in there for two and a half hours wow. doing breath holds as well. Because in order to get an MRI, the the place that you're MRIing has to be like, you know, fully still. And the heart is constantly beating. And so you have to do a series of breath holds in order oh. to get the images. So I probably did 300 breath holds in the MRI machine in this claustrophobic box. And I was like, Megan, this is a big time player. So make a big time plays <laughs> moment. You need this diagnosis you need to step up but it was a little bit of a harrowing experience and i i totally understand now why you asked that why so many oh nurses and radiologists radiology techs asked that i would it would give me such a panic attack i would have to be medicated so strongly um to get in there and so uh, later on we ended up getting the diagnosis from that which included the myocarditis which is a scary diagnosis for an athlete so um where are you at right now with that like how are you feeling about it like i mean it's hard so yeah where are you at I think to use language that you've used before, it's a total shit stew of emotions, oh. to be honest with you. It's kind of like throwing in anger and sadness and frustration, but then also like gratitude to be alive, gratitude for the community, gratitude for love, and just stirring that up in one giant pot yeah. and randomly taking a spoonful and picking up one emotion at a time. And like very hard to predict what's going to come out of that pot on any given day. And that's, that's how I feel. I think that being said, the biggest thing on my mind right now is just getting to Friday. Like I'm actually yeah. still in a decent amount of pain. And I think there's something humbling and just, I just want more answers in this process. And so I think Friday is really on my mind, but then also trying to focus on being in the present moment. It's like not trying to keep getting to the next step of answers and really just focusing on being here and now, because like we were talking about in the hospital, there have been so many gifts and so yeah. many, so many points of gratitude and fun and enjoyment, in, even in this process, even though on a whole, it's largely sucked. And I'm just like, so freaking proud of you. So what I'm thinking about is when you were in the cardiac MRI, um, I got to be the secretary of the Megan Roach fan club. Oh, thank you. <laughs> just in your room alone with my legs up uh, on your bed. And medical professional after medical professional came in and told me how much they loved you, how much you uplifted them while you're going through this extremely scary journey. And I mean, you know, we talk a lot about these types of principles. You live them at your hardest moment. And it was one of the coolest things ever for me. And obviously, this is going to include a lot of really tough times moving forward. Um, but 
God, that spirit, I think that can get you through anything, like absolutely anything. And I feel like all the medical professionals, all the nurses would really agree with me. Oh, that, that means that, that means a ton. And again, like the nursing staff, just so kind, so nice. My, I mean, my heart goes out to people that are, are nurses because it's like truly caring for people at some of their most vulnerable moments yeah. and being there for people in those moments. I mean, so much gratitude. Well, you said your heart goes out to them. Perhaps we should send some yes. other appendage. I know my heart moment. is not the strongest form of my body to go out <laughs> yeah. to someone right now. But that being said, I think I really will need to carry that like love and wisdom and support into the process ahead because it's going to be a long road realistically ahead getting back to running. So with myocarditis um, in particular, it requires a long period of time off from running to give the heart rest. So at this point, it's three to six months off of no exercise, which that's a long time not to exercise or sweat or move your body. And as we've talked about before in the podcast, like it's a big source of dopamine for me. Like, you know, exercise is something that's like foundational to my happiness, to my community, to basically like how I go about and even like my productivity at work thrives from exercise. And so it's a little strange to have that diagnosis, but you know, I've been here before with other things that have been hard, my hamstring, my hamstring surgery, my back, all these things where I've been told it's going to be a long road to recovery and I've gotten back. And so I think I have that sense of confidence, but also like fear in just realizing it's going to be a long road too. Gosh, the autoimmune stuff is so hard and how it interacts with everything. And hopefully we can get answers on how to treat that in the upcoming appointments and things in a way that prevents some of this stuff. But yeah, that uncertainty is so difficult. Like how are you dealing with that as it relates to running. And I mean, this podcast, for example, it, this can't be easy. Um, you know, I, I know for a fact that it, it, it's not in every way And like, yeah. How, how is that treating you? I think I would say well and not well, which okay. I think is about par for the question. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what anyone would expect. Saturday, I actually had, I'll call this my like rage against the running machine moment <laughs> where Saturday I was like, F running. I hate running. I don't want to ever see running in my life again. Yeah. Like this sport has taken so much away from me. Like I, I love it so much and I can't do it that it's triggering and jarring and hard to see anything running related. But fortunately that was actually short lived on, yeah. on Saturday. I, I raged and I oops and rallied and I rebounded <laughs> and Sunday I woke up and I was like, actually, you know, I think I'm ready to embrace running and I think I'm ready to continue being a part of the running community and continuing loving running and supporting athletes and being a part of this community without actually running. And I'm ready to step up in this process in a way that maybe I haven't been able to do throughout other injury processes. I love that. And it's it's so beautiful because everything we love comes with these moments, hopefully not so severe, not so like death uh, defying, but, um, you know, being able to channel that even in those moments is key. I was thinking on Saturday, we put up our, our Christmas tree and we have one running ornament, which is like a woman that's just like in the emoji stance of running that says, keep running. Megan grabbed it and threw it on the ground. It's like, no. Um, but the next day at some point, I just looked over, you were grabbing it off the ground and putting it on the tree. And I was like, hell yeah, that's what it's about. And that was symbolic. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm ready to embrace just loving running and owning that, but also owning that this hurts too. Yeah. So it's it's like a multi-pronged sort of sort of embrace. We actually did a podcast yesterday, yesterday with Emma Abramson. She yeah. runner for University of Oregon, now has her podcast. She's just, I mean, she's a, a great support for the running community. And she said something on there that really resonated with me. I was like, Emma, this is therapy. Thank <laughs> you for this. She talked about the idea that she hasn't raced since 2018, yeah. but she still considers herself a voice in the running community. She still considers herself an active part of the running community, someone who engages and lives with 
of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I needed to hear <laughs> because that's going to be my, my next, you know, three to six months, maybe longer if this recurs journey ahead. Yeah. And that podcast comes out this week, Convos Over Cold Brews. Uh, check it out if you're interested. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be so uncertain. And maybe that's like one of the big messages of all of this is that the uncertainty that you face so specifically is something we're all facing all the time with basically everything we do. And sometimes it comes all to the surface at once and is fucking jarring and, and hard. Um, and other times it's just a background awareness and how you've dealt with that is super powerful, which is like, you know, you felt those feelings and the mix of like potential optimism, but also like the fact that that's not doing shit for you. And um, perhaps most of all, staying in the moment and not just trying to get to the next time horizon like that has been really inspirational for me because I can often be so anchored in the future that I'm just like living in the clouds more than like, oh, well, what, what are you going to do today to find joy? Especially when you can't be active in a, in a way that, you know, you could be active with every passenger you had. I mean, passengers, you could arm bike or something at least. Yeah. And so it just turns you into this situation where like, you're actually jumping into the shit stew, not just stirring the pot. Thank you. Well, I feel like the, the community has been like, so helpful in this process. And I think that's really the first time too, that I've actually embraced letting love in. Okay. I think there's a part of like accepting, you know, people reaching out. We have so many flowers in our house right now that we are putting flowers in cookie jars and dog treat containers. And it's like, it's so beautiful to think about like, you know, just how the community has supported us in this process and, and grateful for that. But I think the the flip side of that is that running has allowed that, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Running has built that. And even though I can't run right now, that, that love from the community is a reflection of its power, even yeah. when running sucks. And then I think the other thing too is, is like, I just don't love being that person who's like quote unquote sick yeah. and it makes me feel weak and like a wuss and in reality that's not the case but by letting love in I feel like it's actually me being vulnerable and tough because it's like yeah I am sick right now and I'm really grateful for for that support yeah I community I guess is just shared vulnerability and thank you so much for sharing this story because yeah everyone's dealing with something right and those things that feel so heavy and are so heavy, um, a lot of the power is taken off when we can share them. And one thing I've seen with you, laugh at them. Um, I was listening to a podcast called The Endless Honeymoon Podcast. It's amazing. But they have called something called a secret dump, where uh, listeners share just random secrets, not with the idea of solving them, just to share them. And the, the thesis of it is that if you're able to laugh at something, it eventually loses some of its power over you. And your ability to laugh throughout this process and cry and feel your all your feelings is, I, I don't know, giving it the full flavor of life and you know you're adding some spice to that shit too and i love it so we cool. yeah we rely a lot on laughter in terms of like an antidote to a lot of life's problems <laughs> in this household one thing i wanted to ask you though is i think there's been a fundamental shift in how you've supported me in this process and i think that's actually at this point been pretty key for me being able to process things and to be okay and to go through this journey with you is the idea that like you have this natural like fearless positivity and just incredible optimism. But in the hospital, like that actually wasn't what I wanted in the moment. Like mm -hmm. it, I just, for whatever reason, I was like, I just, I can't deal with this right now with a ton of like fearless positivity. And you showed up to meet me where I was. And I'm just curious, like how you did that, because I think that's not necessarily a natural part of your personality in a beautiful way, but by doing that, I mean, it just was integral for me. Yeah. And thank you. It's something that I've tried to be wor working on a lot is um, noticing that I can do that and that, you know, this is obviously life or death. So it's very, it's very obvious that you shouldn't necessarily do that, but everything can feel like life or death. As we've talked about in the past, the stress bucket filleth. 
Um, and sometimes those stresses are life or death. And other times those stresses are job promotions or work presentations or your children or whatever. And constantly redirecting to optimism when it doesn't, that doesn't feel like um, the context that is appropriate can actually be negative for someone's growth. You know, you have to kind of meet them where they are, as you said. So what I've tried to start doing, um, and this is motivated a little bit by just reading about how therapists do it, is I always, I try, I'm either try to ask before, it's like, are you ready for me to do my thing where I like do this and, you know, kind of making fun of myself? Or I'll say, you know, stop reading now if you're not quite ready for this reframing of this issue. Um, and, you know, it's the problem with being zoomed out sometimes, like as coaching necessitates and as I've done since I was a little kid, and I think it makes me a really good coach, is also you can be implicitly downplaying the current feelings people have. And so hopefully I, I validate everything you're going through because it sucks. And it, and now, I mean, people might not necessarily know how much pain you're going through, but it really hurts. Like even right now, it probably hurts a lot, right? Yeah. The pain part of this is tough, yeah. like especially at night. So when you lay down at night, the inflammation, the heart has a lot of nerve endings there and the inflammation can really hit the nerve endings. So it's one of those things where I'm awake at midnight and it's painful, yeah. but then also midnight is when all those like scary existential thoughts come in. So when you combine that with heart pain at the same time, it feels very existential. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me tell you that. Yeah. One of our, one of our athletes sent us uh, just randomly a quote that demons are nocturnal. And uh, heart pain perhaps is a little bit natural too. I am probably connected to, I've read some studies on autoimmune pain is largely experienced at night and you throw that whole shit together and it's like, shit, you're going through a lot. Um, so I just want to say, thank you. Like talking about this on the podcast, like it's going to really touch people that haven't even dealt with health issues. And it's more just connected to being a shared human because you're the toughest person, the most accomplished person, and you're bringing this vulnerability in that we can all share. And so thank you for like uplifting me and inspiring me every day, but also everyone else too. Thank you. I mean, it means a ton having everyone's support on this and you, David, you've been fantastic. I just love how you ask questions throughout this process. You're like, Megan, what are you ready to hear about? Like, are you ready to talk about running? And that answer last week was a heck no. Yeah. And I think like you asking those questions and showing up has been great. And then the community too. I will say this though. So right now I'm actually working on compiling a list of all the activities in life yeah. that are awesome and fun to do that don't involve getting your heart rate up or sweating. And if listeners out there have ideas for that <laughs> list, that would be great. I have like baking cookies. I have wheel throwing pottery classes, all different kinds of things on there. And at some point I'll put it on my Instagram for people who are also going through a similar journey because, you know, sometimes in life you just can't exercise. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so good. And I think uh, from this, like, okay, actually, are you ready to hear an optimistic turn? Yes. Okay. We're going to get so much fucking stronger as a relationship, as coaches, as athletes, as everything. Um, but like all things that make us stronger, they kind of hurt in the moment. So, you know, I'm excited for the heart pain to go down and for us to be talking more about metaphorical and figurative hurt. Uh, but for now, I think, you know, let's, let's, uh, use this to catapult us into a bright, beautiful tomorrow where hopefully we're not, you know, experiencing heart pain. Wow. Let's take some super diva Watts and catapult into the wisdom quest. I'm like all about it. <laughs> okay. But I want us to end on one last note though, is I got a lot of messages yesterday asking about the relationship. So myocarditis and pericarditis right now are well known in terms of their relationship to COVID and yeah. the COVID vaccines. And we largely don't think it's related to COVID. So I had mild COVID a year ago. It would be atypical for mild COVID a year ago to cause this now. And then because of the autoimmune stuff I've been experiencing, I actually chose not to get the booster shot. And so I had vaccines last March, April. Yeah. So also probably not related to that too, but that's been one common question I've been getting. Yeah. And it, it brings up bigger points about like 
vaccine advocacy in general, um, because one of the things that struck me is when you went down for one of the, which scan was it that you went down for? So in the cardiac MRI, they ask you a bunch of questions. And one of the questions they ask you is like, which arms you've gotten the COVID vaccine in? And I you know, mentioned that I hadn't gotten the booster yet. And they started giving me all kinds of crap for not <laughs> having gotten the booster and then inquiring about my plans to get the booster after the hospitalization. And it was one of those moments, actually, you know, it's like, okay, I'm an epidemiologist, but I'm also going into a cardiac MRI right now for suspected myocarditis. Yeah. And this is like not the best time to be talking about that because, you know, that's a very, very, very rare side effect of the vaccines. But as a result, I can't get it. But it, it re what really struck me was the idea that like, we just shouldn't be shaming people for vaccine decisions. Like vaccines, great. Like we need people to get vaccines to boost herd immunity. But also at the same time too, there's some special considerations in which people can't get vaccines. Yeah. And then the idea too, like I had such a visceral reaction to kind of like that shaming moment that I feel like if we shame people that also don't necessarily have like either the health education or just like, you know, haven't had the background in vaccines, that it also just makes that process harder too. Yeah. I mean, as uh, Brene Brown's TED, as uh, Richard Thaler said in Nudge, people are not motivated by shame. Like it's just not something that draws them home. So even if it's an action that people need to take, like um, what, like a vaccine for a normal person, or I mean, even something that would help a person, like let's say addiction treatment, shaming them into doing it will just make them turn away. So as you think about any of this stuff, uh, let's let's turn down the notch on that and try to make it also from a place of love and uplift and, and, and good things, because that's often what motivates behavior, unless like your stick. So like in the carrot or the stick, the carrot is like the, the uh, good things. The stick is like the punishment in law. The punishment needs to be so great that it overcomes any sense of like preconceived notions or tribalism or, you know, all the other things that can go into decision making. And we're not going to be doing that with personal decisions like vaccines. So let's try to get to a point of like, bringing people along on the ride with us rather than like trying to like force them to do anything because that's just going to make people turn away. I think. I agree hundred percent. And I think like maybe there's times in human history where that the idea of like coming down a little bit harder on people actually makes sense in terms of like helping develop ideology or thought processes. But I feel like vaccines just not one of those spots. It's best to approach it with like wisdom and love and education and support. Um, and that being said, vaccines are awesome yeah. and great. And the scientific yeah, Want everyone to get that. Yeah, the scientific technology is great. It's just I think it's really important how we have these discussions and also thinking about it from like what's how would how do we have these discussions and how does that motivate public health? And this is a topic I'm actually curious to dive into more research on. Yeah, well, I think the idea is that on social media people dunk on each other all the time. Like they, you know, like, oh you fucker, and um like act like I mean, that's not helping anyone, right? Like that that type of mindset is actually making things probably worse if any if anyone's motivated at all. Um, so, you know, do it through love, whatever that thing is. Um, so zooming out to wisdom quests more generally, because we want to use this hopefully uh, as some motivating terms uh, that apply a little bit broadly. And I think what it all applies to is this uncertain and scary future that we're all facing if we think about it much at all. And in the face of that, we're talking about wisdom quests. So like these learning adventures of learning, uh, which you are really on one right now. I think there's a lot of parallels. We did one episode talking about the dark forest. Yeah. I think there's a lot of parallels between so the wisdom quest and the dark forest. And perhaps they're something similar. But I think I think now it would be instructive to talk about wisdom quests in the context of athletic lives and athletic yeah. journeys, because there's so many of them out there. And I think they teach us a lot about life in the broader context. 
context. I totally agree. So um, actually, do you want to talk about the running ones? Or do you want to stick script straight to the basketball one? Let's go talk- straight. Let's go straight to the basketball one. Okay, but before we do that, actually, this week Lucy Bartholomew had an amazing. Um, she posted this picture on Instagram that had a picture of a panda, and then riding on top of the panda was this tiny dragon. And I took a look at this, and the, I was like, "This is exactly what I need in this moment." And the the um, panda said. What is more important, the journey or the destination? And the tiny dragon responded, the company. And (laughs) that was like what I really needed to hear was the idea that like, you know, as we go through these experiences, it's truly like the love and the community that imprints on our brain. And I, I don't know, I was channeling the the energy of that tiny dragon. (laughs) I also think it's a good metaphor for our, like our animals, because I I think panda kind of does get at my uh my vibe sometimes and tiny dragon really gets at your vibe <laughs> you can breathe a lot of fire at, at moments as well um so that that touched me really deeply when you said that um so i mean i think the hard part of all of these things is the offset between like our goals and dreams and these this perfect world scenario that we say when we say shoot your shot put yourself out there and go for it and the reality that you know, that doesn't happen a lot. And that by opening yourself up to vulnerability, you will also get burned. Sometimes your heart will be really inflamed figuratively or literally. Um, And that uncertainty is fucking hard. So hard on all of us all the time and just about everything if we think about it enough. And you look to like popular culture or popular media. And I think people talk about this constantly because it's a like an inevitable and human experience that like everyone goes through. We actually had a listener send us a quote from Grateful Dead. And I love this quote. It says, when life looks like easy street, there is danger at your door. (laughs) And what a great Grateful Dead lyric highlighting the idea that like, it's never easy street. Yeah. And, you know, I think being aware that there's danger at your door without dictating your life by fear is a really hard balance. And the story we want to tell is about Clay Thompson. So Clay Thompson, um, one of the more interesting and revolutionary basketball players of all time. Um, so he's had a wildly good career. He once scored, get this, 60 points in th- just three quarters of a basketball game with 11 dribbles. So, you know, he made 25 shots, let's say, and he only dribbled the ball 11 times. So in other words, he is revolutionizing the game of basketball through his like catch and shoot mechanics. And, you know, with Golden State, he's won a few championships. Um, Basically, he came in to a sport and totally changed the way it was played along with Steph Curry. And um, everything was looking like surefire Hall of Famer at the peak of his powers when in the 2019 finals, um, he, I believe, tore his ACL, right? Um, And we were watching that game and it was like, oh, fuck, there goes a year. And it's like, oh, like this guy, it's such a tragedy. And knowing that, like, I mean, it hit us in the gut as we were watching that game. And it, yeah, it, was, it was just really, really hard. I have this immediate visceral response to players that get injured during games. Like I, yeah. I can't watch the replays of it. Like so everyone's like, oh, show us the replay. And I'm like, no, no, I'm good. I would actually rather not watch the replay. But that 2019 was challenging for Clay Thompson. And then he came back in 2020 and ruptured his Achilles. Yeah. And can you imagine going through the knee surgery and then the ruptured Achilles? Actually, there's statistics in basketball about the number of players who used to come back from ruptured Achilles. Yeah. And it was shockingly low. Now they're coming back more and more with like the, the advances in sports medicine we've had. But that's a in terms of like a one-two sucker punch of injuries, yeah. that's not easy. And especially when thinking about that uncertainty and the narratives we're all doing. So like with your heart narrative, for example, it's like, well, you know, we'll be back, blah, 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 all these optimistic narratives. I mean, Clay Thompson's probably like, okay, I'll do all this hard rehab for like six hours a day and I'll be back in 2020 at the end of the year and I'll then pick up my career where it left off. And then in a pickup game, not even in a real game, tears his Achilles. Um, and so the incredibly powerful image that made us talk about this um, was this year. So he's still not quite back. Um, he's on his way back and he's on the bench in street clothes and Golden State had just won a game 
and Clay Thompson stayed on the bench as the stadium emptied out. Um, everyone cleared out. All that was left was cleaning staff, and he had a towel over his head. Um, and he's just looking at the ground with a towel over his head. Um, and you know, I think that that moment of he's almost back, but he's not there. Of this uncertain journey, I mean, is a gut punch, um, and also like a really beautiful human experience in in talking about vulnerability that he had. And I thought, that, you know, the type of narrative of a wisdom quest that is really powerful for all of us. I think this makes me think about community too. Yeah, there's a really powerful image of uh, it was Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and head coach Steve Kerr walking with Clay Thompson off the court after, and just you know helping him get through this time. And yeah. then some powerful quotes that follow. I particularly love Steve Kerr. So any podcast that Steve Kerr is on, <laughs> I try to listen to because he's a you know he's a coach who was a player once himself. And I feel like because he was this all star player himself, he totally gets the mindset and, that Clay Thompson is going you through. Know, he's been through so much like pain and yes, suffering. Like true. His yes. father was assassinated actually when he was, um, I believe a university president or something in the Middle East um, back in the seventies or eighties. And so, I mean, Steve Kerr has seen it all um, in terms of trauma and things. And, you know, his quote about it was amazing. So Steve Kerr said, I just try to put myself in his shoes. The good news is he's nearing the finish line in this, but he can't help but stop and think about how much he's lost the last couple of years, just on a personal level. He loves the game so much and not being able to play, not really being able to be a part of the team the way he wants to. It's been pretty emotional for him. He's very human. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Like he's vulnerable. He's emotional. That one, That's what makes him such a beautiful person. And he just cares and he loves the game. He loves the work and he wants to be a part of everything. All that's been ripped away the last two years. So there's been times when he's been pretty down. Oof. I mean, that must re- reading that must hit you pretty hard thinking about what's ahead, you know? Like, I mean, does that make you feel... Like any feelings about your own journey? It does. And yeah, I think for me, well, I think I think about the first thing that I think about is like visualizing myself with the the parallel of Steve Kerr and Draymond <laughs> Green and Curry walking me off the court and just grateful that for that community. But it does. I mean, I think like I think these these moments are so challenging to yeah. navigate. And I appreciate, you know, Clay Thompson being open about it. And, yeah. you know, I hope to do the same. That's so beautiful. Yeah, vulnerability is the ultimate virtue. I, another sports story that's a little bit connected to this, um, if you haven't seen Untold, I think it's called Breaking Point on Netflix. It's really good. It's on Marty Fish, um, who was this tennis player that was always kind of like the understudy of Andy Roddick, the famous tennis player. He was much more relaxed. He was good, but not great. He was in the top 100, but not in the top 10. Um, and then all of a sudden at age 28, he goes all freaking in and they do this like training montage. It's really intense. Um, and he has these huge goals of like, he's going to get to the top eight tournament at the end of the year. And after it, sure enough, he does. He accomplishes this impossible dream at 28, which is for tennis, you know, very rare to see a player have their breakthrough at that point. Um, but what happened next is he has this breakthrough and then the next year, the pressure of it, the, the accumulation of stress mounted up into this major mental health struggle where, um, you know, he, he had become invulnerable. He specifically said, I do not show my vulnerability. I never show this to anyone. And it all hit at once or over the course of time. And I mean, it essentially ended his career, at least in that phase, in that moment. And he had to take a few years off. And it, it just shows that like opening up to vulnerability does not make us like um, it, at more at risk of like 
experiencing the negative things. In fact, it makes us uh, more human and more like connected to a community and more able to to find our ultimate performance potential too. And that's really powerful. I totally agree. Also, as an aside too, I think it's interesting. The documentary didn't necessarily like talk about this or yeah. highlight this. Is as part of going all in. I I wonder if that contributed in many ways to this breakdown because it was like he was defining himself by this one identity, yeah. but also in the process of going all in, he lost a significant amount of weight and. I wonder, and I think now in research, we're starting to see the impacts of like what happens when you do that to the body and you're having these catabolic effects on the body, how does that impact mental health? And I wish they had commented on that a little bit in the documentary. I think they were trying to allude to it a little bit, but curious to see more research in that area about that process and the interaction between like, you know, either whether it's like, you know, a lot of weight loss or disordered eating or eating disorders and mental health. That's such a good point. Yeah. And maybe the idea is go all in with love and vulnerability, not all in with like fear and a need to prove something because that, that might eat you alive no matter where it ends up. Um, so another beautiful quote about Clay Thompson, this one is from Draymond Green. So if you don't know Draymond Green, he speaks off the cuff. He is a uh, awesome guy, but like he's very outspoken. So this is exceedingly powerful coming from him as well. He tends to have these days from time to time and who I, am I to judge or even to try to figure it out? I can just show my love, show my support, try to push him. He's improving rapidly and his game is getting back to where it needs to be. So it's beautiful to watch him conquer his journey that he's been on and he's conquering it. Like I said, he's right there. He's almost there. If you talk to someone in prison, a lot of guys say the toughest days are the ones when you know you're getting ready to come home. We feel for him, but we're going to continue to be there for him, continue to push him and wait with open arms these next few weeks in hopes that he'll be back sooner rather than later. Um, I love that quote. I mean, what that underscores to me is that the journey goes on, right? It's not just the trauma. It's not just the recovery. It's also that like, even when you're getting close to the finish line, it's still just as hard. In fact, it can be harder. And so we're at the start of our, of of your journey. I don't want to like bring myself into it, but like, it doesn't change the fact that like, it's going to be hard in the future too. And, and there, it might not be this bright light at the end of the tunnel. It's like, we got to enjoy the fucking tunnel. Well, you're definitely a part of this. I mean, <laughs> when we run a ton together and you know, you going out the door without me inherently makes you a part of this. But I think the other thing too is, is I love how Draymond here emphasizes the idea that sometimes it does get close once things start to become, or it does get harder once things start to become like more tangible yeah. of getting back. And I see that so often in athletes journeys and my own journeys. And I think, it's counterintuitive. And I think it's important for athletes and, and people out there just to give themselves a little bit more love once they start to see the finish line, because that can be seen like the farthest road. And it's a great metaphor for change more generally. So like, we're all about quitting your job, like doing all these other things. Um, but that can sometimes be like the contemplation of change or the initial change is usually where a lot of the growth, but then also pain happens. And so the example I was thinking of is divorces. Um, So, you know, we have seen people go through this really tough, terrible process, or I don't want to say it's terrible, but tough process and come out the other end as like the happiest, most fulfilled humans. Um, But often the hardest part we see is like when they're contemplating it or like wondering if this is the right decision, feeling terrible about themselves. Um, So wherever you're at on like those specific types of journeys, try to give yourself the extra big dose of love to make it nonlinear because um, it really, really, really is nonlinear basically all the time. And I think our human brain wants to map linearity onto these processes, mm-hmm. especially onto the processes of other people, because we only have snapshots of their life. And I think um, Curry actually alludes to this in a really interesting quote. So Curry says, 
I'm super proud of the way he's approached this two-year window because it's, unless he wants to write a book and tell every step of the way, nobody will understand what he's been through away from the game for so long. And it's true that I think as humans, it's hard to carry these emotions and like, it's inevitable. Like no one is going to know the full extent of like the memories, the experiences, the things that we have together. But it's also like, you know, we get to share in snippets yeah. and we get to piece together in snippets. And that's, that's a challenging part. Yeah. And it, it's such a dose of compassion, right? Like I always wish people could see like into training logs for one day that like we see, and it's like, Oh, you feel so much compassion for everyone all the time. Because even though we're seeing snippets, we're seeing a little bit more of a snippet. And in those, we get all of this information that is so touching. And hopefully we're giving you a little bit of that on the podcast that lets you uh, feel, feel that with, with us too. Um, so yeah, where do you want to go from here? I, I actually think, um, the, to end this, uh, a brief plug of the 14 peaks movie is super powerful because that's connected to some of these ideas of uncertainty in wisdom quest. So, uh, 14 peaks is freaking awesome. Watch it on Netflix. It's about, um, the, this climber's journey, uh, to climb the 14 peaks over 8,000 meters in under seven months. Um, but the part of it that I thought was most powerful is when him and his crew arrived at K2. Um, K2 is like this killer mountain, um, that's notorious for being exceedingly dangerous. And, um, there were these quote from the other, this quote from the other climbers, um, when he arrived. Before Nims arrived, the climber, we had really struggled on K2. There were actually three avalanches where climbers were swept down the mountain. We were all thinking, sometimes the mountain is telling you that you need to turn around and go back. The atmosphere was super depressive. But then something happened. And that something was Nims. So <laughs> then in a dramatic fashion, this documentary cups to Nims and he's standing out there and it looks so cold and like harrowing yeah. and desolate. And he's like, you fucker. <laughs> and that was the impetus to get this party started amongst this community of people that were feeling pretty down about getting up the mountain. And it changed the culture and it changed yeah. the, the approach of what this community was feeling. And obviously that's life or death. And they did a lot of different planning. Like they went up in the middle of the night. So the snow was like concrete to set these lines and do a lot of other complicated things but what the what the documentary really focused on was this party element and it, so nims is like so i started to do a big wild party mate um he has this really uh endearing accent um celebrating the uncertainty of the process and he was like as they were partying he was like one life yeah we live it um and i was thinking a lot about megan in the hospital at that moment he says like if anything those nurses were saying when i was the secretary of your fan club Megan lives it and she's helping us live it too. And that was really cool. Well, the one quote that I took away really from Nims and he, this, he said this so pointedly, he said, sometimes you feel like you're fucked, but when you say that you are actually fucked, you're only like about 45% fucked. And <laughs> I drew onto that and I was like, actually, I'm like 35% right now. And that was something I feel like, you know how there's there's gears on a bike? Yeah. I almost always save one gear when I'm climbing because like this is my emergency <laughs> gear. And I feel like the score of like how fucked you are, you always need to save a, save a percentage <laughs> because you're never like really truly fucked until the end. Yeah. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah, I feel like maybe the whole lesson here is that the church of 35% fucked fucked uh to understand that yeah you know it is dark and desolate we all die um it's just going to happen on your athletic journey even the great championships aren't that like much in the end uh and through it all just try to grasp onto the part that you aren't fucked and make it a party as much as you possibly can in that process i am so down for that um yeah and so ending on a quote then this one um was sent in by listener p from Rudyard Kipling. I, I think it's probably from one of his poems or something. If you can dream and not make dream your dreams your master, if you can think and not make your thoughts your aim, if you can meet triumph and disaster, 
and treat those two imposters just the same. And um, you know, our, our I think our message is trying to treat all those imposters, whether the imposter is um, triumphant disaster or you know really specific things about your life or how you conceive of your life. The more we can meet it with love and compassion and openness and tears and the whole shit stew, the better. I I absolutely love that. And I think for me, the line that resonates the most there is just, if you can dream and not make dreams your master. Mm. I think for me, that's been one of the greatest challenges in life is like, when I go all in, I really freaking go all in. <laughs> and I think it's important, like you can do that, but it also doesn't have to become your master too. And that's, that's such a delicate line. And, you know, adding that into the shit stew of everything else that we've been dealing with as well. Uh, I'm so... Just so, so, so proud of you. Um, okay, so we're going to get to some running specific topics real quick here that uh, I think are, are palate cleansers on on the big health discussion. Um, and the first one is on the new Olympic trials qualifying marathon standards. Um, so you might have seen this story. It's, it's a very quick um, message that we have. But um, the background here is that they dropped from, for women, 2.45 for the marathon, so two hours, 45 minutes, all the way down to two hours, 37 minutes. Um, there were some rationales for this. The main ones being kind of the logistics of the event that they had 500 people in the last one over 500. So it was a little crowded and, and it cost a lot of money. Um, and the other one from a performance level is that people argue that the higher standard raises the overall performance level. The old rising tide raises all ships. People end up clustering around whatever you set the standard at. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's really interesting on, on a lot of different levels. And I, I mean, compelling rationales, even though I don't necessarily think it justifies this decision. Well, it's interesting because I think we see that and kind of see a little bit of a different possible story. And maybe this comes from having like the intimate experience of getting to coach athletes yeah. who are striving for the O2Q is I feel like the idea of reducing the O2Q is a little bit frustrating in some sense though, because I think for a lot of people, 245 can feel tangible. Yeah. And the act of striving for something and the act of having something that feels a little bit more tangible can be so valuable for those athletes who are running, you know, 252 in the 250s and are thinking about this process of going for it. And I think the athletes that are in that active process of going for it, that's inspiring to communities. Oh, yeah. It's inspiring to young athletes. It's bringing a lot of people into running and sharing their journey in a way that just, you know, increases the excitement about the the Olympic trials and about running and marathon racing in general, yeah. that's on a whole good for this. Yeah. I mean, the bigger the crowd, the better, because every single one of those people isn't just that person. There's an iceberg beneath that of people they're inspiring. But then the part that I think can sometimes get lost in this discussion is not just the 500 people that were on the start line, but the 10,000 people that made that their goal that didn't quite achieve it, whether that was like they were striving and only hit a you know, they were able to hit a three hour marathon, still really fast, but not quite there. Like those people really count too. And I think sometimes as we talk about this, we can lose sight of that because on it, like, I think what's going to happen here, tons of people are going to hit 237. And then there's going to be the, there's going to be this uh, response that's like, oh, of course we should have raised the standards. We did it right. And the point isn't that a number of people will hit it. It's that's cool and all. But what I'm really interested in is how many thousands of people are striving because all of those people that are striving are going to lift up their communities, lift up themselves, um, really inspire the next generation and make it so that this sport grows. And I think the role of a governing body and the role of this really big opportunity of the Olympic trials can be to grow the sport um, from the grassroots on up. And I worry that this might, you know, curtail that a little bit. How are you talking about it with athletes? So I've had conversations with athletes recently who I think were on the cusp of 245. And I think this is a new like stimulus. It's like, okay, like yeah. let's, you know, let's use this as a motivation point. Let's go for this. But how are you structuring that conversation with athletes? 
go all in. Um, and that's the idea here. So the, the curtailment of um, the opportunity and the inspiration is still a choice that all athletes are making. And even if you saw that initially um, and you got a little bit discouraged, that's okay. I mean, I totally understand that, but don't let it stop you. Go all in. We don't know what we're capable of until we truly give ourselves the chance. And the OTQ is a chance to chase that. Whether that ends at 236 or 244 or 345 or seven hours and 87 minutes or whatever other irrational number you want to think of, it's all the same from like an inspiration and uplifting point of view. So what I'm saying to athletes is, look, we can't predict the future. We can't predict exactly how things are going to unfold, but we can control our own actions. And we are going to go fucking go for this if this is one of our goals um, that brings us meaning. One thing that I've seen on this topic that I've aligned with, and I feel like it's just a fun analogy to think yeah. about. So Peter Bromka on Twitter, he tweets a lot. He has the idea of like the burn the boats concept in terms yeah. of going for this. And he said, honestly, when people first began asking if I was going for an OTQ, I hadn't quite wrapped my mind around it as a possibility. Initially, it was easier for others to see my task at hand than myself. But now I've got no choice. The boat's been burned. The only path now is forward. Along with several other men at the Bowerman Track Club, I'm committed to the craft, to the journey, and to the audacious dream of the impossible. And that's, <laughs> that's how I've been approaching it with athletes is yeah. like, let's burn the boats. Let's take the path forward. Uh, yeah. That's the only way. And the situation is to strive for it and to go for it, even in this moment, if it feels a little bit untangible. Yeah, the audacious dream of the impossible. Peter Bronca, an amazing writer. I think he was actually in the best American sports writing for one of his... Um, essays about the marathon. Absolutely cool. But, you know, I think wherever you're at, go all in, go all in through the uncertainty, even if it's really scary things, um, even if you have to zoom out a few more years, um, given what you're facing, because that's where, you know, this magic happens and you truly learn about yourself um, by getting incredibly vulnerable with something that seems impossible. Um, okay. Do you want to do the next topic on supplements or do you want to skip straight to listener corner? Let's do supplements. Okay. Yeah, awesome. We'll make this a slightly longer podcast. So grateful for our listeners. Um, so I'll read this question. We actually, this was a great question and they provided a resource that I think is actually helpful for a lot of athletes. Um, the question was, I recently came upon an interesting website from the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, side note, Australian Institute of Sport has an awesome website, yeah. tons of information on there. I think it's a helpful guide point for a lot of these topics that we talk about, and they do a good job of compiling the evidence. Um, that website shows their science-based evaluation of different supplements that can enhance sports training, and I thought you might be interested in it. Given your discussions on the SWAT podcast, I thought it might be something that you would find intriguing. For me, it was interesting that most of the strong science-backed supplements were any forms of sports nutrition or vitamins coming from food. I feel that aligns with a lot of the messaging on your podcast, and I'm curious to see what happens with some of the emerging supplements on the um, Australian Institute of Sport website. So yeah, I think the question of supplements is really fascinating because, so on this podcast, we talk a lot about like going for it, going all in. What is going all in other than trying to find every single performance benefit you possibly can? And supplements seem to provide a very tempting resource for that because it's like, oh, well, you know, to get usual performance benefits, I have to go run all these hours. And meanwhile, I can just take a pill and get the same ones and optimize myself. Um, but that obviously comes with perils. Um, one, you know, a lot of the times anything that is feels like a shortcut um, is either illegal or doesn't work. And um, I think where you see that a lot is in the Shelby Houlihan story to follow up on that. Um, she's recently released a GoFundMe for her legal fees, which I think is a little bit sketchy. Um, but, you know, the idea there is our suspicions is that she was probably taking some sort of supplement if, if, to give her the benefit of the doubt, some sort of supplement that either had contamination or she wasn't fully aware of what was in it, whether it was given to her or something like that. And it resulted in this positive test. And then she got herself in this web of 
deceit, perhaps. And it, it created this really, sh you know, this bad situation. I think the other challenging point on this topic too is the idea that there's not a lot of long-term studies that look at these supplements. Also the idea that a lot of these supplements may provide like a one, possibly 2% performance increase. Yeah. But when you start stacking those supplements together, I'm pretty convinced that those performance increases don't stack. Yeah. And so it's also looking at, at that and then also looking at the context to like blood tests, really understanding the human body, working with a doctor on many of these topics, so important. But how about we go through it this way? So the Australian Institute of Sport essentially gives different grades of evidence. So they have A, B, C, and D groups for evidence, and they rank the supplements in terms of how beneficial they may be for performance. And I like what they did for the A group. So for the A group, they broke it down in terms of sports foods, medical supplements, and then performance supplements. Mm -hmm. And unsurprisingly, I think there's a ton of gains that can be happened from like medical supplements and yeah. athletes that may be deficient. And this is the area. So that would be things like iron, vitamin D, uh, supplementing in, if, if you are deficient, it makes total sense, like fixing a deficiency, yeah. fantastic for performance. Um, but I think what would be most interesting to highlight would be some of these sports performance supplements where you're not fixing a deficiency, but some of these supplements may have interesting like physiological mechanisms in which they impact the body. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And, you know, um, brief step back on the vitamins, like I think that's where something like inside tracker or a blood test really comes in handy where you're getting down and dirty with what you're, what's going on under the hood with your body. Um, that being said, a lot of times what I end up suggesting is a multivitamin or something like that, because if someone like the one that, um, I've taken before is first endurance multi-V. Um, it's really well researched. It has a lot of um, good things and it kind of gives me this broad spectrum. Okay, I don't have to think about it. Beyond, I'll let these people I trust think about it for me. Um, not sponsored or anything. It's just something we've seen works for athletes and uh, they you know, have had their athletes tested a million times and no one's tested positive. So they're... Uh, product tracking seems like it's pretty good. I echo that sentiment. I also take the first endurance multivitamin. It's great. Um, but let's go through, how about we go through some of the specific sports performance supplements. So we'll go through creatine, beta alanine, nitrates, and then um, end on um, turmeric and curcumin, um, which is actually, so turmeric and curcumin is actually in group B and these other ones are in group A. But I think just going through really briefly, like what's the mechanism? What have we seen in athletes and like, what does the evidence show? I think it's great. So uh, starting on creatine, what are your... Um, thoughts on that. We've gotten questions into the podcast actually about this supplement. It's not something that I've ever been aware of any athlete I coach taking. Um, yes. And it's not something I'd recommend, but I mean, it's in group A for this Australian Institute of Sport. I echo that. So quick primer on creatine. So creatine essentially, essentially increases creatine phosphate um, and that allows for stronger muscle fiber contractions and then also plays a role in um, glycogen replenishment as well. So most of the research is done on fast twitch athletes. It's done on athletes that are um, doing explosive sorts yeah. of movements. And that's where I think creatine comes in. And I think that's probably why it's also included on the um, Australian Institute Sports of, of um, Evidence in the Group A is because there is some strong evidence for explosive athletes. Yeah. That being said, I think it's actually not fantastic for endurance athletes. Um, I would add the caveat, though, that there's been some strong research looking at um, older athletes, so athletes over the age of 50, and then also um, some benefits in vegetarian athletes as mm. well, specifically in explosive sports. But I think for a 50-year-old vegetarian, <laughs> that might be one interesting conversation is like, could this help improve because it's improving power? Could that also help improve endurance as well? I, I briefly took it in high school um, to help me weight lift more. And all I remember is getting really, really bloated 
And um, that being said, I did get really big lifts, um, <laughs> but I got big lifts while looking like a puffer fish. So maybe there's trade-offs. And creatine is known to impact body composition. So that's actually one strong side effect of creatine. For some people, that's positive. For some people, that's negative. It just depends on your take. So that being said, I, we don't recommend creatine for endurance athletes. It's not something that we commonly see or support. But again, there could be some special considerations for vegetarian athletes over the age of 50. Yeah, and if you had a different experience, um, shoot in your message. I'd be curious. Um, number two, beta alanine. So uh, this one is used by endurance athletes, and um, I'm actually not even 100% sure what it does. I've just read some of the studies on like its effectiveness. So beta alanine is essentially, it's a non-essential amino acid in the body, and it helps produce carnosine. Um, carnosine then goes on to be stored in the muscles and then serves as a buffer to um, reduce acidity during high-intensity exercise. That's how the mechanism works. Studies that have looked at beta alanine actually look at it in terms of muscle endurance and time to fatigue, yeah. which are beneficial in endurance For athletes. Sure. Um, those are, those are things that are really helpful. Actually, interestingly, similar to creatine, a lot of studies have been done in older athletes huh. as well. So looking at how beta alanine impacts older athletes. Okay. My take on beta alanine, yeah. it's in a lot. So it's an optogen, which is I've, a first endurance product. Yeah. And I've, I've heard of athletes taking that, including well-known ones. I've also, is it in some goo products, I believe. I think it might even be in Rectin. I'm not sure. Um, but it's in a lot of products nowadays because the studies are pretty good. My big question about it is whatever benefit is seen in a study, is that actually seen in the real world over time? And does it actually like, make, how does it mix with other things? Like, as we said, if you had a 0.2 reduction in time to exhaustion, how does that work and interact with like other things you get 0.2 reductions in? I, my guess is it all just reaches this like uh, hole that ends up being uh, indistinguishable and it all kind of maxes out at 0.2 anyway. Like it's not like you're adding these on top of other things. Absolutely. I think the other thing for me too is one side effect of beta alanine is something called paresthesias where it makes you tingle. Mm. And I get that strongly. So I used to take Optogen back in the day, first endurance Optogen, and I did not like the feeling of yeah. it at all. It would cause this like weird pringly tingly sensation all over my body. And it made me kind of cold sweat and was not into that. <laughs> I'm into Pringles however they happen, but um, you know, a little bit skeptical about beta alanine, but it's something to look into if you're curious about the science. Um, and yeah, I should write an article on that soon. Um, next one is nitrates. Um, so this is super interesting because this is um, about you know vasodilation and things like that. Um, what are the what are your thoughts on nitrates? I think nitrates are great. So essentially, how nitrates work are they're reduced to nitric acid, um, nitric nitric oxide. Sorry, in this in the stomach, and then nitric oxide um, is a vasodilator, and that allows for more oxygen delivery to your muscles. And that's yeah. great. It's like I'll take more oxygen in my muscles. <laughs> that's awesome. I think the challenge with nitrates are so one plasma levels of nitric oxide peak two to three hours after supplementation, which is pretty high. It can yeah. be kind of hard to figure out that peak window. Um, but I think, I don't know. So I think it's challenging. So one, I don't have the best like GI response. Yeah. So a lot of these are concentrated beetroot powders and they don't taste fantastic. And I sometimes have like not not great GI responses to them. And there's also been not a lot of long-term studies done, yeah. but that being said, few side effects and there might even be some cardiovascular like health benefits to them too so i'm not against them but that's always my fear is how does this interact long term with the body processes that they are also using so like what what will happen over 10 years to the underlying physiology of a person that's doing this really long term probably nothing it's probably just like a normal process but um, that uncertainty makes me a little bit skeptical at times. That being said, uh, as I've talked about on the podcast, like I will do beats um, or, or things like that. Other other 
uh, things that do that are amino acid L-arginine. Um, but I can't do that. Actually, I tried it. I tried it one pill once and I got so dizzy, um, likely from the same. And that shows other the side effects for individual physiology. Like that was probably very bad for my health and not a good idea. And that's why now I just kind of try to stick with vitamins, um, like the medical, the medical stuff. And the next one uh, is something I also take, which was in group B, turmeric. And uh, how do you say the next one? Curcumin. Curcumin. Oh, that's great. I think that's how I've always said it. No sounds, one's, no one's ever corrupted me. So sounds delicious. Um, so you've, I actually read, uh, you wrote a paper at one point for like, maybe it was even like a textbook or something, a textbook chapter. And I was compelled by some of the research that was on this. Like it seemed pretty good. Uh, yeah. I was writing on osteoarthritis and lifestyle approaches to, to managing osteoarthritis. And so yeah, turmeric heavily used in people who might be impacted by inflammation yeah. and oxidative stress. So I have actually been taking turmeric because I was like, I'm a creature of inflammation. <laughs> Let's throw some turmeric at this itis and, yeah, and see yeah. what happens. Uh, I stopped taking it because I had a heart thing, but I think it's totally unrelated. Well, and it must also must not have like done the greatest job in the world. Probably doesn't substitute for other sorts of uh, interventions. Um, but you know, that, that's actually, I started doing it around the same time and haven't noticed any change, but then again, I've been training pretty well. So, you know, who's to say what causes what, and maybe that's the hardest part of all is like, it's extremely hard to isolate any of these variables. Um, and so even the studies that do do interventions, it's like really difficult to tell what causes what. And in the studies, they're essentially looking at muscle pain and fatigue following exercise. And there are some studies that show that turmeric and curcumin could reduce muscle pain and fatigue, and then also reduce uh, stiffness and inflammation as well. What I think is so challenging though, is one of the, the big obstacles with turmeric is how do you make this? bioavailable. So you need special like lipid additions to actually make it bioavailable. Some companies reduce it down to nanoparticles or have these like absorption onto matrices to make it bioavailable. But again, it's a big challenge. We're taking this natural food source and trying to make it readily bioavailable in large doses in the yeah. body. And that's just a hard chemical challenge. And then it also, it makes me a little bit like, well, what are we actually doing yeah. to, you know what I mean? What are we doing to the truck? to the turmeric as we're chemically modifying it. I personally want some nanoparticles. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm going to be really powerful. I have some nanoparticles. Um, another one that we, we didn't um, talk about before, but I've heard of some athletes taking um, recommended by in inside tracker actually is ashwagandha, um, which is an herb that um, they're not exactly sure of exactly its mechanism, which is another reason to be really cautious. Um, but it works by reducing cortisol, which then can um, improve hormone balance might have long-term effects. Uh, just something to research if you're dealing with like low testosterone or, uh, messed up hormones or high cortisol or something like that. Um, that being said, really, I think for us, it all gets back to focusing on the baseline vitamins, vitamin D, iron, B12 per, in particular. Um, and then going from there based on research in doctors rather than, you know, exercise science articles, or even this podcast. Like we're just trying to tee up some things that might be interesting for you as you think about it. And I think some small points to be careful on. So one, be very careful with contamination. Um, as we were talking about, probably in the situation of Shelby, you know, who knows if she was taking yeah. something that was contaminated. Second point, um, be very careful with interaction with other medications and then also interaction with underlying medical conditions as well. So all of these, talk to your doctor, talk to a coach, talk to a healthcare professional about these, like important to just review yeah. all. Yeah. Embrace caution. You know, I think sometimes the conversations on this can be super unhelpful because people are like, just never take anything ever. And then it's like, well, this professional runner is taking something like, you know, a supplement, like one of the ones we talked about, like turmeric or something. And it's like, are you just saying that, that I think people say that because it's the easiest answer and it just absolves them of any responsibility. So, um, all we'll say is research-based doctor-based, um, focus on your health rather than thinking specifically about your performance.
Do you want to roll to listener corner? Let's freaking do it. So I mean, I think I said this 18 times throughout the episode. So grateful for our listeners. <laughs> this one is called Celebration Swag from LNA. And I personally love this. Just a follow up. With one minute left in the game tonight, her third this week, A, who also never got a soccer goal in three years, got her first basket ever. Yay! We went out with the team afterwards and everyone celebrated for her. We dedicated the basket to Megan. Oh, I'm like, I'm like getting goosebumps now as I read this. I wish I could have bottled up some of our euphoria and mailed it to you guys. Thanks for helping us get to that moment, LNA. Yeah. So you probably remember that that was um, we were asked about confidence in, in young young athletes, and um, that A scored her first basket. Um, and we were talking all about the culture of celebration. So hell yeah, celebration. Uh, also, let's have pizza parties for everything, as long as it doesn't cause heart damage. Um, you know, everything short of heart damage is worth it to celebrate for a pizza party. I totally co-signed on pizza parties. <laughs> we love LNA so much. Um, then the last one here is called Happy Heart, and this is from Jay. When my podcast feed didn't go drop a new swap pod on Tuesday night, I grew concerned. I'm so sorry to hear about Megan's health issues. She has been going through so much, and I imagine another layer of adversity is not what she or you or Addie needed. But if anyone can figure it out, it's Megan, especially with you by her side. Wishing you all the best. And though I've come up on empty finding mythical heart rocks on the trails, I'm sending you a picture of heart-shaped manhole covers as seen on the streets of South Orange County where I live. We are rooting, rooting for Megan and the Roach family. And attached was a picture of a manhole, a series of manhole covers that formed a perfect big old heart. And I think that's the best analogy ever. A bunch of shit forming a heart. I was going to say, I've seen a lot of hearts this week. Yeah. That was the first manhole heart I've seen. And I was all for it. <laughs> perfect for our heart sharks that we've been experiencing here. So um, yeah, I just want to say, I love you. I'm so proud of you. And thanks for talking about this today. And wherever this goes from here, I'm right by your side. Can't wait. Thank you. And thank you to everyone navigating this alongside us. We got this wisdom quest yeah. in rate, subscribe, review, whatever you do to this podcast. We're grateful for you all. We love you all. Woohoo! Bye.